Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. And we're looking at verses 22 to 32. We have uh, covered most of the, that section already, so I'm not going to review all of it, but when we stopped last time, we were in the middle of considering the last two verses, verses 31 and 32, in which Jesus is pronouncing an anathema on the Jewish religious leaders who had led the nation in rejecting him. And so we're going to just pick up there where we stopped and do some review of what we've already said and then continue on, finish it up, and start the next section. He says, verse 31, 32, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit... It shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. As I said last time, few passages of Scripture have been more misinterpreted and misunderstood than these two verses. Uh, Jesus begins by saying, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Uh, it's a very simple statement. Although blasphemy is a sin, in a sense it is distinct. Uh, in this passage, the sin and blasphemy are treated separately with blasphemy representing the most extreme form of sin. Sin represents the overall category of evil deeds, immoral acts, ungodly thoughts, attitudes, actions, that sort of thing. Blasphemy is the unique sin of consciously speaking evil against God, of saying things about God that are not true about him, of speaking of God in a derogatory manner. That is blasphemy. It's a defiant irreverence. It is to speak evil of holy God. And Jesus begins by saying that any kind of sin and blasphemy is forgivable. Now, if he had stopped right there, it would sound like a statement of universalism. Uh, and all sins will be forgiven, thus everybody will go to heaven. Uh, or you could interpret it to mean there's no such thing as the unpardonable sin. But we know from other scriptures that there are conditions uh, to the forgiveness of sin. And we definitely see there's a condition to it because the rest of the verse says but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. So there is one sin which God will not forgive. And it's the only sin in the Bible of which it is ever said that it is unforgivable. Now this sin is defined further in verse 32. It says, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. <clears throat> Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Jesus. So what is he saying by that statement? He's saying that you can speak against Christ, but the emphasis comes from the title, Son of Man, which designates not his deity, but rather his humanity. Uh, it speaks of him in his humiliation, his servitude. And so he is saying you can speak a word against the Son of Man, and that would be forgivable. Why? Because you may speak against him seeing nothing more than his humanness. In other words, you may not recognize you're dealing with deity. But so if you're Speaking against him as the Son of Man, you're condemning him because all you believe him to be is a man, even though you're wrong. Uh, but, watch this carefully now, he says, But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Why? Because when you say, I recognize the supernatural, I recognize that Jesus had supernatural power, but I think it's from Satan, not God. For that, you won't be forgiven. 
if you're looking at him strictly on the human level, and that's all you perceive and understand, you can be brought along to believe and understand and be forgiven. But if when you have seen the supernatural and the ministry of the Spirit of God through Christ, and you conclude that it is of Satan, you can't be forgiven. Because now you're speaking against the Spirit of God, the power of God, the energy of God, as made manifest through Christ. And so in a real sense, you're speaking against his deity, his divine nature, and you're calling it satanic. <clears throat> that was unforgivable. Why? Well, because forgiveness is based on repentance and faith in Christ, right? Now, if they've concluded that Christ is filled with Satan, they certainly aren't going to listen to his message about repentance and put their faith in him. The reason they could never be forgiven is because they would never believe because they had been given all the evidence that there was, and their conclusion was the very opposite of the truth. Therefore, they were hopeless. If you've known all the truth, and you've concluded that he's satanic, you're hopeless. Before you can be saved, you must believe that Jesus Christ is God and the only Savior in whom you'll place your faith and allegiance. Uh, you must believe you're a sinner, and that you must repent of those sins and turn to him in saving faith. And if you examine Jesus Christ and observe all that he uh, did and taught and then still consider him to be satanic, then you certainly will not trust in him to forgive your sins and thus you can never be redeemed or forgiven. Well, these guys, these Jewish leaders, saw the work of the Holy Spirit and they said, it's of Satan. They'd seen thousands of miracles and healings and dealings with demons. They'd seen dramatic individual miracles and, and uh, miracles on a massive scale, too. And they'd heard teachings and preachings. And yet they concluded he was of the devil. So they, he says, <clears throat> you can never be forgiven. There's no way. Why? Because they will never get to the state needed for forgiveness, which is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because they have concluded the very opposite. So they did it to themselves. And because they hardened their hearts against the obvious truth, their unbelief became a permanent, unpardonable condition. God judicially abandons them in their own state of unbelief, and so they are permanently condemned without any hope of ever repenting. That's where we stopped last time. So let's pick it up and have you turn with me to Isaiah 5, and I want to show you a parallel passage. The prophet was confronting the nation of Israel, which was about to go into captivity in Babylon. And in Isaiah 5, God describes why he will judge the people and send them into captivity and why they will be devoured and destroyed by the Babylonians, which he describes as roaring lions that seize their prey with no one to deliver it. But an interesting point here is that he calls Judah my vineyard. Let's read beginning at verse 1. Let me sing now for my beloved, for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around. That's the idea of digging a moat around it for protection. Removed his stones. That means he removed the Canaanites. <clears throat> and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. That's the city of Jerusalem and its temple. And also hewed out a wine vat in it. That's the sacrificial system that was the way to produce proper worship of God. Then he hoped for it to produce good grapes. It produced only worthless ones. 
He wanted his vineyard to, to produce excellent fruit and wine, but all it produced are sour grapes. And so he says in verse 3, So now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why, when I hoped for it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So he says in verse 3, you judge. And then in verse 4, what else could I have done than what I already did? And so, you know what he says? He says, that's it. Look at verse 5. So now, <clears throat> let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the clouds to rain no rain on it. That is a prophecy that the armies of Babylon would come and destroy and devastate the land. There was nothing more to do. There was no reason to wait because he had done everything he could have done. They had seen everything they could have seen, and yet they turned their backs on God at that point, and so there was nothing else to do. And you have the same thing going on in Matthew 12. As you look at these Pharisees, what else could God have done? They saw thousands of miracles. Over and over they'd seen it, they'd heard it, they'd known of it. By their own evidence, they had proven themselves in their own minds that he had the power, but they concluded the very opposite. So Jesus says, you're obviously not looking at me simply as the Son of Man. You've gone beyond that. You've recognized my supernatural power. But your conclusion is that it comes from the powers of darkness, from Satan himself. You're hopeless and you cannot be forgiven. <clears throat> and it was less than 40 years after this that God destroyed the entire Jewish society and religious system. In 70 A.D., God sent in the Romans and they destroyed the temple. They wiped out the city of Jerusalem. They massacred over a million Jews. And in the years that followed, subsequent conquerors came through and slaughtered Jews in 985 villages and towns. It was over because all of the evidence was in and only the remnant remained and the rest said he is of the devil. Now that situation was unique to that period. But that kind of sin is not necessarily unique because it came in the very next period. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5. <clears throat> Here we see the next period of time, the period that immediately follows the life of Christ. And we see the same kind of sin occur again. Let's read beginning in verse 11, and then I'll comment on it. Hebrews 5. Writer says, Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. Now in chapter 5, just before this passage, he's been talking 
about some pretty heavy theology. Uh, comparing the priesthood of Christ with the priesthood of Melchizedek, who was an Old Testament king and priest in the book of Genesis. And he's making a, contra a comparison between Christ and Melchizedek rather than Christ and the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. And he says that Christ is more like Melchizedek as a priest. And he goes into this very marvelous comparison. But then in verse 11, he sort of stops and gives one of what are known as warning passages. The book of Hebrews is basically written to Christian Jews. But periodically there are warnings to non-Christian Jews, uh, unsaved Jews who have had all of the intellectual information, they've had all the intellectual stimulation, they had the proof, they've had the evidence, they've seen it all, they've heard it all, and they believe it in their minds, but they will not come to Christ. They won't take that extra step because they're afraid of being ostracized by their society. They're afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. They're afraid of being put out of their families and the Jewish social society. And so they're holding back. And so he says to them in verse 11, in effect, I want to say more, but it's hard for me to say it because you're so stupid. That, that's what the term dull of hearing means. Uh, the Greek word means sluggish lacking intellectual acuity, slow to learn, stupid, lazy. Uh, in other words, he, he's saying, I can't say anymore because you're too thick. For the amount of time you've been hanging around this stuff, you, you ought to be able to teach it. But not only are you unable to teach it, you need someone else to teach you the elementary principles, the ABCs of the oracles of God. What is that referring to? The Old Testament laws. He says, instead of being able to teach and understand these rich truths about the Messiah, you need to be taught the Old Testament basics again. You're like a baby who can only handle milk. You can't take the good solid stuff. And he says in verse 13, <clears throat> you're unaccustomed to the word of righteousness. That means inexperienced, unskillful, ignorant. They're inexperienced and unskilled in righteousness. That's a good indication they weren't genuine Christians. They're dabbling with Christianity, but they weren't committed to it. They're unskilled in true righteousness. And he says, you're infants. Now, the word infant does not mean a baby Christian, a new Christian. Uh, infant means an ignorant, spiritually inept individual, whether you're talking about a Christian or not. Uh, the term is used in 1 Corinthians 3.1 to refer to Christians but it's used in Galatians 4.3 to refer to non-Christians. Uh, so that isn't the issue. And here, they're non-Christians, Jews who should have been able to teach the truth of the Messiah, but because they wouldn't listen to it and they wouldn't come all the way to faith, they had to be retaught the old ABCs of the Old Testament because they're so ignorant and unskillful in the truth about righteousness. And verse 14 says they didn't have the, ability, the sense to be able to discern because only the mature eat solid food and can discern good and evil. And so we, then we come to verse 1 of chapter 6. And watch what happens. Therefore, based on what I, he just said, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ. Now, some people have really misunderstood what that says. Where are the basic elementary teachings about the Messiah? In the Old Testament. What are they? Types shadows, prophecies, sacrifices, all of those pictures in the Old Testament 
that were the ABCs about the Messiah. He says, we've got to go on. We've got to leave those things. We've got to press on to maturity. So don't think of that as spiritual maturity as a Christian grows, but rather of salvation, the maturity of coming to the Messiah in faith. In chapter 7, verse 11, he says, Now if perfection, that's the same word as maturity, was through the Levitical priesthood and so forth. He's saying that the Levitical priesthood couldn't save. Verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect. The law can't save you. And then when you go into chapter 10, it becomes abundantly clear. Verse 14, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's not talking about the spiritual maturity of the believer. That's talking about eternal salvation. So going back to chapter 6, verse 1, he says, We've got to leave the Old Testament pictures and come on to salvation, which means we've got to get into the new covenant. We've got to get into Christ. We can't be doing all the old stuff over again. And he mentions several things there. Notice it. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of teachings about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. You say, what? Is that saying you don't have to repent? No, they believed in repentance. They believed in turning from their sins and turning from dead works, but there's more to it than that. They had to repent and come to Christ. They have to come to Christ for perfection. And he says, in a faith towards God. <clears throat> Again, there's nothing wrong with faith towards God, but that's incomplete. To get to God, they have to get there through who? Jesus Christ. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And what about the teachings about washings? By the way, some versions, a couple of versions out there translate the word as baptisms as if it's referring to our New Testament ordinance of baptism. That's not what the word means. It means to immerse with water. Uh, it refers to ceremonial cleansing rites of washing, such as the high priest went through on the Day of Atonement before he entered the most holy place to make the sin offering. These weren't Christians. These were Jews, and these are washings. And so he says we have to leave the teachings about external cleansing with water and come to the cleansing blood of Christ that washes away sin. And then he says, laying on of hands. That refers to when the Jew brought his sacrifice, he laid his hands on the animal to identify with its sins. And the writer says, we've got to get to the point where we're no longer worried about laying hands on sacrificial animals, but where we are laying hold of Christ, the Lamb of God. That <coughs> he says, and the resurrection of the dead, which was taught in the Old Testament, but we don't truly comprehend until Christ, who is our life, comes out of the grave. And then finally, the eternal judgment, which comes into clear focus in the New Testament as to punishment and reward. So the whole passage here is, look, you people who, who are stuck, you people are stuck in your sluggishness and your ignorance and your stupidity going over all the basics. You've got to come all the way to salvation in Christ. And the Jews to whom the writer of Hebrews was writing had received much of the same kind of evidence which the Pharisees had received. They had heard the message, not preached by Christ, but by his apostles who had his commission. They had seen miracles come through the apostles by the power of the Spirit. They had neglected it and their hearts had become hardened to the truth. Now, watch what he says in light of all that. He says, you've got to move on, and only God can help you do that. Verse 3. Why? Here comes the warning, starting in verse 4. You've got to move on to faith in Christ for one basic reason. It's this. For in the case of those 
once having been enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. You see what it says there in verse 6? It is impossible. Do you know what that word means? It means impossible. <laughs> it doesn't mean really difficult. It doesn't mean that. It means utterly impossible. It's the same word used in verse 18, by the way, where it says it's impossible for God to lie. So it's just as it is just as impossible for this to happen as it is impossible for God to lie. What is it? It's impossible for those who were once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift, became partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. In other words, he says, if you fall away now, you will never ever be renewed again to repentance. You'll be hopeless, just like the Pharisees of Matthew 12. You say, now, Bruce, wait a minute. Aren't these people Christians who lost their salvation? Well, let's find out. Verse 4 says they were enlightened. What does that mean? It has to do with your mind. It means to give the light of knowledge, to understand something intellectually. That's its use. He's talking about head knowledge. Matthew 4, 16, Jesus said, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. They were exposed to the light. And yet, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. The light was there. They had been enlightened, and yet they didn't believe. Second, it says they tasted of the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? I believe that's Christ, the unspeakable gift, the salvation message, the gospel bound up in Christ. You say, well, how did they taste Christ? They followed him around. They saw his power. They heard his message. They saw his miracles. But they didn't eat his flesh and drink his blood, as John 6 says they would have had to have done. They just dabbled in it. They just tasted it. They knew its character. They knew its quality. They're like the spies at Kadesh Barnea who spied out the land, saw all the good things, turned around and went back and said, we can't take it. And then further, they became partakers of the Holy Spirit. How did they do that? Well, if you were on a hillside in Galilee when Jesus made fish and bread and you ate some, you'd be a partaker of the power of the Holy Spirit, wouldn't you? Or if you were a blind man and you were given sight, whether you were saved or not, you would have partaken in the power of the Holy Spirit. They had seen miracles, many of them. By the way, the word partakers means companion or associate. That term is never used in Scripture of a Christian. Uh, we are in a, we're not in association with the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt by the Spirit. We're possessors of the Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit. We're not just associates of Christ. We're fellow heirs with him. They were just associated. They were just hanging around. And then it says further that they tasted the good word of God. Of course they did. The term for word there refers to a saying, a speech, something that's spoken. They had heard a lot of speeches about God, a lot of speeches about Christ. They had listened to the preachers. Many of them heard the word of God. They may have heard it with interest and eagerness. It says in Mark 6.20, that when Herod listened to John the Baptist, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Obviously, Herod never believed. 
But that's, and that's the way these Jews were also. And then it says they had tasted the powers of the age to come. What are the powers of the age to come? Well, what is the age to come? The age to come is the kingdom. What is its power? The full power of Christ. And they'd seen glimpses of that, hadn't they? So here in this generation, right after Christ, ministered to by the apostles, enlightened by their teaching, able to taste the heavenly gift because they preached salvation, they were made partakers of the Holy Spirit as they saw the miracles. They tasted the good word of God as it was delivered to them and the powers of the age to come were demonstrated to them by the energy of the Spirit through those preachers. So what's he saying? He's saying exactly what God said in Isaiah. What more could I have done? I mean, what do you need to see in order to believe? If you've had all that and you fall away, it's impossible to renew you to repentance. Why? Because if you don't believe when you've had all the revelation there is, you'll never believe. You'll take your place with those who crucify Christ. The text says that you, if you do all of this and fall away, you can never be renewed to repentance. You can never come back. What he's saying is if you're at the point of the highest revelation, you'd better believe that at that point, because if you don't, that's it. You fall away from the fullness of revelation, and that's it. You will become an apostate, unredeemable, unforgivable, forever and ever. Let me just add that you shouldn't take that final statement about the age to come, meaning to mean that someone who is not forgiven in this life might hope for forgiveness at some point after death. Uh, such a possibility isn't even contemplated. The idea is something like neither in time nor eternity, never. Blasphemy against the Spirit has eternal as well as temporal consequences. Those who commit this sin cut themselves off from forgiveness here and now and from forgiveness in eternity. Now listen very carefully as I draw this all together. People say, what is the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? It was attributing to Satan the work of the Spirit. When they had all of the revelation there could possibly be in the presence of the living Christ on earth, they concluded it was satanic. They could never be forgiven. And then people ask, well, can other people who didn't see and hear Jesus commit this sin? Well, not in the exact same sense. In the very next generation after his ascension back to heaven, you have a very similar sin where people had all of the revelation God could possibly give them through the apostles who told them what they saw and observed and performed miracles to authenticate their message. And yet those people came right to the edge of belief with full understanding and said, no, we're not interested. And they fell away and they could never again be renewed to repentance. How much more severe, not just to fall away, but like the Pharisees, to fall away and then overtly blaspheme Jesus by attributing his power and works to Satan. You see, the ones in Hebrews just didn't believe. They weren't willing to pay the price. But the ones in Matthew not only weren't willing to do that, they blasphemed God. And so while both of those sins are unpardonable, the Pharisees had the greater guilt. But hell is reserved for both. You say, what about this age? Well, in this age, the same principle is valid. Some, if someone has been exposed to all of the truth concerning the gospel that God can give, in other words, they have 
full and complete information to make a decision and they understand it, but their final conclusion is that it is not the truth, they're unredeemable. And the warning is don't get to that point. That's why Jesus warned in John 9, 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. In other words, you better believe while it's day because time is coming when the lights are going to go out. During World War II, a large Allied naval force was engaged in a heavy nighttime battle with German ships and submarines in the North Atlantic. And there was a lull in the battle and Allied forces were in a very precarious position. And there was a moment of respite. So six pilots took off in their planes and left the carrier to see if they could search out enemy ships or submarines that could be attacked. And while they were all up in the air, the enemy did attack by air and the order came that there was to be a total blackout. And the carrier had to shut off every light. And this left the six pilots flying around in the air without any ability to locate their ship in the dark of a black night. And they radio in and the first pilot said, give us some light and we'll land. We'll make it even if we have to fly through enemy bombardment. But because the entire aircraft carrier with its thousands of sailors as well as the other ships in the area would be put at risk, the radio operator said, I can't, I'm not permitted to turn on the lights because it's a total blackout. And the second pilot said, just give us one light. And he said, I can't. And each successive pilot tried to get that operator to break his orders, which he didn't. And the record says, quote, the operator could do no more. He reached over and turned the switch and broke radio contact. When the planes ran out of fuel, they had to ditch in the freezing cold waters of the North Atlantic and six aviators in the prime of manhood were sacrificed in order to save the fleet and they drowned and were lost into eternity, end quote. You know, I'm not the judge of when it happens. But there comes a time when God turns out the lights and the person who rejects Jesus Christ can never find his or her way back. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The time will come when one who rejects full light can have no more light and no more forgiveness. And that brings us to the end of this passage. That's a significant and rather morbid way to end. But are there any questions or comments? Yeah. Oh, yes. So I guess based on that, I know there's the Armenian perspective and the Calvinism perspective. Mm-hmm. How does that, because that sounds more like the person has a choice. Well, Let's put it this way. The same Bible that says God chose us before the foundation of the world has Jesus saying, come unto me. Right. So there are you you have to, explain. it is one of those we can't explain. No human being can explain it. Frank DePronio, with all of his education, cannot explain it. But he believes it. So, Yes. Right. 
distinction because the God of this world has blinded them and they don't even realize that they haven't really truly trusted Christ and they can't come unless he draws them first. Yeah. Yep. Okay, anything else? Well, let's continue on. And we will not finish this passage. We're going to look now at verses 33 to 37. Then start looking at this passage. <clears throat> Jesus continues, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's been estimated that from the first good morning to the last good night, the average person engages in 30 conversations a day. Uh, some of us average more than that, some of us less. I'm not going to get into the issue of how many men speak, words men speak versus how many words women speak. I saw that in my notes, but I, well, I will. Yeah, statisticians have estimated that each, of us, each one of us is going to spend 13 years of our life talking. And every day our words could write a book of 50 to 60 pages. Uh, in a year, if we're just average, we could author 264 books of over 200 pages uh, with just our words. And you can do more than that if you can speak in excess of 300 words a minute, as some of us are able to do, or if you talk incessantly at any speed. Uh, the, Guinness World Word, the Guinness World Record for the longest speech belongs to Luis Collet, a Frenchman who talked about the Spanish painter Salvador Dali uh, and Catalan uh, culture and several famous authors he admires for 124 straight hours. Uh, that's five days and four nights of nonstop talking. Astronaut Michael Collins was speaking some time ago at a banquet, and he estimated the average man speaks 25,000 words a day, and the average woman speaks 30,000 words a day. And then he added, unfortunately, when I come home each day, I've spoken my 25,000, and my wife hasn't started her 30,000. <laughs> <laughs> but listen to what a writer back in the 1800s had to say about the incessant talker. He wrote, <clears throat> quote, he shakes a man by the ear like a dog does a pig and never loosens his hold until he's tired himself as well as his patient. His tongue is always in motion, though very seldom to the purpose, like a barber's scissors, which are, all, which are kept snipping as well when they do not cut as when they do. He is so full of words that they run over and are thrown away to no purpose. Whatsoever is put in him runs out immediately. He is so long delivering himself that those that hear him desire to be delivered to or dispatched out of their pain, end quote. Look again at what it says there in verse 37. By, for by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. Does that seem startling to you that Jesus says your eternal destiny 
will be determined by your words. Uh, that what you say will ultimately be the criteria by which God determines your destiny. Uh, your words alone will determine your justification. Your, your words will determine your condemnation. Does that shock you? Well, let's look at the text and find out why Jesus said that. Now, keep in mind, <coughs> as we've been going through this, you should know this by now, that chapters 11 and 12, Matthew is chronicling the rejection of Jesus Christ by the nation of Israel. There was open, there was criticism and indifference. There was open rejection and finally blasphemy. They're no longer just wondering who he is and criticizing what he says. They're no longer merely indifferent about him. They're no longer merely rejecting him. Rather, they're now turning on him in overt blasphemy. <clears throat> and the substance of their blasphemy is found in verse 24. It's the key to understanding this passage. Verse 24 says, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Of course, that's the name for Satan. So they watched Jesus cast out the demons from a man who's blind and mute and on very likely also deaf. And then the people began to wonder if Jesus might be the Messiah. The Pharisees are threatened by the thought of that. So they hurriedly and publicly affirmed that he did what he did by the power of Satan. And thus they spoke against Jesus Christ, the most terrible words that have ever been spoken in human history, to have called Jesus Christ satanic, to have said that the sinless, spotless Lamb of God was from hell. They have concluded the very antithesis of the truth, and they blasphemed the Lord and the Holy Spirit who worked through him. They committed a crime unequaled in human history. And now the conclusion leads to the very next passage. Jesus condemned them in verses 31 and 32. Uh, he said, as we just finished, that that kind of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit who was at work in Christ could never be forgiven. Uh, and so... Uh, he, he says, you've concluded the very opposite of the fullness of revelation. You're lost, can never be saved, you're lost forever. And their words became that which ultimately damned them. Now let me just clarify here that they were not <coughs> damned simply by the words they spoke, but rather it was by their words became, that made their damnation evident. Uh, it's clear that they were to be damned by the words that came out of their mouths. It's not that you're damned by your words, it's that you're damned because your words reveal the corruption of your heart. That's the issue. That's the substance of the passage. So they were in effect rendered hopeless in verses 31 and 32 because of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as he ministered through Christ, but their words became the evidence of their hopelessness. Uh, the words that they spoke were the objective external evidence of their corrupt, vile, wretched, wicked hearts. And so then it's no surprise when we approach verse 33 that the Lord begins to speak concerning the tongue. He begins to speak about what people say. He has just experienced the most damning verbiage that man has ever uttered, and it's the perfect place for him to speak to this issue. And so he talks about the tongue and the mouth in verses 33 to 37. And in doing so, he speaks one of the most sober warnings found in Scripture as he exposes the truth about the nature of man's heart. So as we go through these verses, we're going to break them down this way. The parable, the personalization, the principle, and the punishment. Let's begin with the parable. Verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. 
for the tree is known by its fruit. Now that's what is known as a parabolic axiom. It's a statement of fact, a truism that is spoken in the form of a parable so that it conveys a deeper meaning. If you have a good tree, you have good fruit. If you have a bad tree, you have bad fruit. Why? Because the tree and the fruit must coincide. It's a simple parabolic truth. Now there's a word that we need to understand here, and it is the word make. It is the common Greek word which means to make or to do. The word is commonly used of physically making something, but it can be used in a metaphorical sense with a meaning of to consider, to evaluate, to judge, to regard. We use it that way in English <clears throat> when we tell someone to make up your mind. Okay? Uh, so Jesus is not telling them to manufacture a tree. Uh, he's using it in the same sense that it's used in John 5.18 where Jesus was accused of making himself equal with God. It's used the same way in John 8.53 and John 10.33. In other words, it is used of, with a meaning of to consider or to regard. He, he was saying, consider the tree good and its fruit good, or else consider the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. He's saying, in your thinking or judging or evaluating something, you must be consistent. Uh, the tree and its fruit must coincide. That's axiomatic. Now, what does he mean by this? He means this. You must make up your minds about me and my work. Either consider me to be good and what I produce to be good, or consider me to be evil and what I produce to be evil. I cannot be evil and do good work or be good and do evil work. If I do good works, it's by God's power. If I do evil works, it's by Satan's power. God empowers nothing evil. Satan empowers nothing good. Now they recognized what he was doing as good because their own sons, according to verse 27, were casting out demons, and they considered that to be a good thing. Uh, they, supposed, they supposedly represented God when they tried to do that. And so Jesus is saying, when I cast out demons, how can you say that I'm evil when your own sons do the same thing and you acknowledge that's a good thing to do? If that which I do is good, then the tree is good. But if I'm evil, then doing that is evil. And if doing that is evil, then your own disciples, your own sons are doing evil. So they're trapped. They had to say that what their own disciples were doing was either good or evil. And if they said it was good, then Jesus had to be good. If they said it was evil, then their disciples had to be evil. They had, but they had just reversed that. They said their disciples were good, but Jesus was evil. Now Jesus used this simple parable more than once. Uh, he used it in Matthew 7 which we saw when we studied the Sermon on the Mount. There he's talking about false shepherds, and he says in verses 17 and 18, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And then in verse 20 he says, So then you will know them by their fruits. In Luke 6, 43 and 44, he basically uses the same idea again. He says, For there is no good tree that produces bad fruit, 
nor on the other hand a bad tree that produces good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. So it's a very simple parable. He says, make up your minds. If the tree is good, its fruit is good. If its fruit is good, the tree is good. If it's a bad tree, it'll have bad fruit. The quality of the fruit is a reflection of the tree that produced it. And the fruit of the Lord's ministry was good. They couldn't deny that. They couldn't deny it was good to cast out demons from people. Uh, they couldn't deny that and maintain their theological posture. They, they couldn't deny that it was good to heal the sick or to give sight to the blind. They knew that disease was the result of sin. In fact, they even pushed that so far that they felt that if a person had a disease, it was caused by sin on the individual's part or their parents' part. Uh, so they knew sin and disease were connected. And so the deliverance from disease was to deliver one from the consequence of sin. They knew that was good. The healing of the blind, the deaf, the mute, they knew that was good. They couldn't deny it. And if they were going to be consistent in their argument, they were stuck with the fact that if Jesus did good things, then he must be a good person. Jesus exposes them again. Uh, the Pharisees could, they could be exposed so easily because no matter what they tried to parade, their evil hearts were so vile and so wicked, so wretched, that their reasoning was absurd and illogical and selfish. And Jesus exposed them so often. And he did it publicly to their face. So what he's saying here is that the character of his own life should have been clear to them from what he accomplished. Uh, this was John's argument over and over in his gospel. If you look over at John 10, uh, John 10 for a moment, there's three different verses there that Jesus says in effect, if you're having a hard time believing who I am, let me tell you how. And so he says in verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. And then verses 37 and 38. He says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and continue knowing that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And the same thing is true in chapter 9, John 9, where the Pharisees come to question the man who was born blind, and Jesus heals him so he can see. And they ask the guy the question, uh, where is he from? And he's, he, he says back to them, this is verses 29 to 33, he says, listen, I used to be blind and now I see, but you guys can't figure out where he came from? It's obvious he's from God. And so here in our text in Matthew 12, Jesus indicts them publicly before the whole crowd that's gathered, and he says, you're absurd, you're illogical, you're inconsistent in your claims against me. So we move from the parable to the personalization in verse 34. He doesn't just leave the parable hanging there. He applies it directly to the Pharisees. Look at verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. He basically says, what in the world should we expect out of you guys but rotten, venomous stuff because you're evil to begin with? I would point out that Jesus was consistent in his interpretation, his evaluation of them. There was a corrupt tree, and so he didn't expect anything but corrupt fruit. Uh, the vile blasphemy, which they 
uttered from their lips gave clear evidence of what was in their hearts. They were corrupt trees that brought forth corrupt fruit. And notice what he calls them. What's he call them? A brood of vipers. That's the same thing that John the Baptist called them back in Matthew 3.7 and that Jesus will use against them in his long series of woes that he pronounces on them in Matthew 23. Jesus wasn't trying to win friends and influence people in the way people teach you to do it. When I was in law enforcement, we tried uh, very, we, we trained very hard uh, that, uh, and we trained people to constantly speak nicely to people, even when you're arresting them, because you wanted to avoid a physical confrontation, if at all possible. And that's certainly how Jesus dealt with the poor, the suffering, the needy, and the hurting. But when he was dealing with the self-righteous, arrogant, haughty Pharisees, he spared nothing. He, he showed no mercy for their sanctimonious, hypocritical ways. They were false teachers, false leaders, and he didn't try to fit in with that accommodating kind of approach that doesn't want to confront anybody about anything. Uh, when rebuke needed to be given, he gave it without hesitation. And keep in mind that this is in front of a large gathering. You know, I and the other elders here at Lakeside have publicly named the names of several false teachers and false religious groups, both in Sunday school classes and from the pulpit. <coughs> now, I'm not talking about someone who is evangelical, but with whom we disagree on certain secondary points of doctrine, but rather those who teach false heretical doctrine about God, Christ, sin, and the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Uh, we've named the Roman Catholic Church, Scientology, Islam, all the various cults, Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, several other members of the Word of Faith movement from our pulpit. In addition to them in this class, I've named Andy Stanley, Joyce Meyer, Jen Hatmaker, Sarah Young, Stephen Furtick, Bethel Church and Music, Elevation Worship, Hillsong, and many more. And I've warned you about some that are right on the edge of becoming heretics, such as Beth Moore. And every so often someone will say something like, are you certain you should be so direct and judgmental about those people in groups in a public setting? I mean, if one of those folks or family members or one of them happened to be here, they would be offended. Or they say, well, you shouldn't call that person a false teacher or a heretic. You don't know their heart. Well, let's think about this. Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers to their face. And in Matthew 23, he calls them whitewashed tombs, blind guides, fools, and hypocrites. And again, he did that to their face. You can't get any stronger than that. And in regard to judging their heart, when the Bereans were trying to determine whether Paul was teaching true doctrine or not, did they worry about not knowing his heart? No. What'd they do? They examined the content of his message and compared it to the word of God to see if what he was saying was so. And that's how we determine if someone is a false teacher or not. Does what he or she says match up with what God's word says? 
So we're not even close to the attitude of the Lord. I think there is a time and place to say those things, and it is to be said most fiercely against those who propagate a false religion as if it were the true one, because that is what damns men's souls, the false security of a false system. Jesus reserves statements like this for false religious shepherds. Now, what does the term vipers mean? Well, a viper is a genus of poisonous snakes. They have large, hinged, hollow fangs through which they inject their venom when they bite their victim. Uh, with the exception of a handful of nations, most of which are very cold countries, vipers are found all over the earth. Because snakes are cold-blooded creatures, they don't survive in very cold environments. So, for example, the various types of rattlesnakes that we have here in the United States are all vipers. Uh, interestingly, however, we have two states in which there are no snakes. Can you name those? You know one of them. Alaska. It's too cold for them. The other state is Hawaii. It's too isolated. Uh, and if you aren't allowed to import, import one there because it's a felony crime to even own a snake in Hawaii. But the Middle East is filled with vipers of all kinds and varieties and sizes, although most are relatively small. After all, it's a very hot climate, so a cold-blooded animal like a snake will thrive there, and Jesus would have been well acquainted with the many different types of vipers that live in Israel. They're, all, they're very common in the desert areas. In fact, their color and shading uh, provide excellent camouflage for them. Some of them look like dead branches. Some look like rocks in which they hide. Others are sand-colored. Some hide in holes in the ground. Others in caves. Others among dead wood. As a kid growing up here in the south, when northern Pinellas County was a rural area, uh, as we roamed around in the woods, we often saw holes in the ground which were made by gopher tortoises, uh, which burrowed into the sandy soil to, to make a nest to lay their eggs. And before they became an endangered protected species, many uh, native Floridians from rural areas used to eat them, including my family. Uh, but we were taught to never put your hand or arm into uh, one of those gopher holes to see if the gopher was there, because rattlesnakes like to use abandoned gopher holes as a place to make a nest. And that was the same situation that the people of Israel dealt with. A viper that was disguised by its background or hidden in an underbrush or a hole or in a, a bunch of old wood or posed a real threat. In Acts 28.3, uh, you remember the story where Apostle Paul gathered some firewood and a viper was, was hiding in the wood? The snake didn't bite him until Paul put the wood on the fire. And then the, he caused the viper to come out and bite him and fasten itself on his hand. Paul just shook it off into the fire, went about his business, and God kept him from suffering any harm. Uh, in Job 20.16, Zophar spoke of the tongue of the viper that will kill. That's, that's really the idea. They're dangerous, poisonous snakes. So, wow. Well, after talking about giving you a lesson in biology, I have to quit. Okay, any, uh, explain why, I have to quit and explain why Jesus called him that next time. Any comments or questions? Now, you now all know about vipers in North Pinellas County. Okay. All right. Frank, please close us in prayer. My voice is going away. Gracious Father, we thank you for...
grace that you extend to each of us, that you've opened our eyes, that we may meet you. Thank you, O God, that uh, you didn't give us a hard hearts that would reject and thus bless. We praise you and thank you for that. <coughs>